Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast for the final episode in our training series with Wahoo Fitness, with me, George Scott, the Editor-in-Chief of Bike Radar. This time out, we're finishing this series with a Mythbuster. I'm back with Matt Cassin, Woe's principal sports scientist, and Matt is going to talk me through five common training myths. If you're new to the series, do go and check out the previous four episodes. We started with a training jargon buster before covering fitness testing, training zones, and how to get the most out of your time on the bike. Before we get into the podcast, thanks to Matt for his time over the past five weeks. It's been great to put this series together, and I've certainly learned a lot along the way. And thanks as ever to you for listening. Make sure you go and leave us a rating on your podcast platform. And if there's a series you want us to cover in future, you can email us at podcast at bikeradar.com. Now let's get on with the Mythbuster. Mac, welcome back for our fifth and final episode in this training series. Thank you for having me back. It's it's sad that this is wrapping up, but this has been a lot of a lot of fun. It has been. It's five. Uh, it's been five weeks now. Five episodes. I've learned a lot through the four episodes that came before this one. But I think I've got a lot to learn in this one because we are going to discuss five training myths. Five training myths that you've put across to me. So I'm really looking forward to this one. I'll be leaning heavily on you to dissect five of your favourite training myths. But before we start, if you're new to the podcast or you're new to this series, do go back and listen to the first four episodes. We've covered a lot of ground from training terms all the way through to how to maximise your training time. And we're going to finish today by debunking five of Mac's favourite training myths. So we've got uh, quite a varied selection of myths to cover today. Mac, we're going to talk about cadence, we're going to talk about dehydration, we're going to talk a little bit about tech and shaving weight uh, off your bike or off your body. 
We're then going to dive into lactic acid. I think that's a really interesting one. And then, uh, again, this one really piqued my interest. We're going to talk about how you can potentially actually get faster as you get older as opposed to getting slower as you get older. So let's start with cadence, Max. So the notes that you put across to me for this one, describe the uh, the idea that 90 RPM is the best cadence for everyone, but I'm going to assume that you don't think that's the case. You would assume correctly. Yeah, there's a lot of... Um... A lot of literature out there, a lot of, you know, if you read intro articles or advice articles about that, like 90 RPM is is frequently used as like the ideal cadence to ride for for everyone. Um, and it's, it is a good, efficient cadence, but it's not necessarily an efficient cadence for everyone. Um, and there's a lot of um, studies that, depending on how they're set up, can either support the 90 RPM idea or go against it. Um, even the ones that don't go against it, I wouldn't necessarily agree with necessarily. So when we think about cadence, a big component is muscular coordination. So every muscle, every joint you have has an agonist and antagonist muscle. So like with your biceps, with your arm, your biceps contracts, your forearm brings it to your shoulder, your triceps on the backside then extends it back out. Now when you're pedaling, you're moving and so you're having to contract and relax your muscles in a pretty synchronous way to be efficient. Um, when people first, first start riding bikes, if you see someone you know who looks like they haven't been riding a lot, they'll probably be pedaling pretty slowly. And a large part of that is just down to that neuromuscular coordination. Now, the issue with 90 RPM being the best for everyone is it doesn't really take into account that individual's capacity. So what I mean by that is moving your legs costs energy, it takes energy to just move your legs. The faster you move your legs, even with zero resistance, takes more energy. Basically, it takes more watts to move your legs. So if your threshold is 100 watts, you know, getting up to 90 RPM, you're going to be using essentially a lot of your output just to move your legs at that speed. Um, it's one of the reasons that as you see like professional riders sitting at 90, 95, 100 RPM, the cost of them moving their legs is so small compared to you know throwing down 400 watts for an hour so the the idea that 90 is best for everyone isn't actually the case most people probably are, are better set around 80 rpm i know for for myself i always found like 85 ish was was preferred now when i focused on the track obviously that's all high cadence stuff so that was a, a shift that was made um but really when you look at um people are actually pretty good at selecting self-selecting the best cadence for them themselves and so really you should be pedaling at what's comfortable for you um and i'll also say that you know as your power increases so as the intensity goes up you generally want to be at a, a higher cadence like most people when they're sprint their sprint their best peak power for sprinting is at a much higher cadence than they would ever ride for sustained periods. Um, so it's really, you know, intensity driven, but also um, just what's comfortable, what are you coordinated enough to do. So it's really interesting there that you point out the fact that newer riders often have a slower cadence, uh, they're spinning the pedals less than a more experienced rider. That, that's definitely something that I've seen and noticed with newer riders, the idea of almost churning the pedals and not getting on top of the gear. And then also Conversely to that, the idea that someone or a professional rider has a higher cadence. So am I, am I oversimplifying it by saying that the higher your FTP or the, the fitter you are in simple terms, the higher your ideal cadence would be? Or, or even amongst professional riders, will there be a significant variation? There's There'll still be a, a variation among professionals. It, it won't be as 
the variation isn't as wide as amateur riders or less experienced riders, but there's definitely, there's no one size fits all for cadence, even for pros. It really comes down to what is most efficient for you. Um, we've done experiments in the lab where I think we've unofficially recorded the least efficient um, person on a bike because they were riding it, I think it was 120 R RPM out of the saddle. And normally efficiency, you're about 25% efficient. They were down, I think, at 8% efficiency, which was pretty cool to see. Not super surprising, but when you look at just the cost of them moving that quickly out of the saddle in such an unconventional position, it made them completely inefficient in that. So that the amount of power they were putting out compared to how much energy they were actually using was was quite, like the difference was massive. Uh, you mentioned earlier the idea of self-selecting and that the best way to find the ideal cadence for you is to self-select. And I think I'm answering my own question here in that self-selecting, the idea is that you go out there and ride and, and you kind of find the right cadence for you as opposed to following what someone tells you to do in a training journal or on a, on a website. But is there anything someone can do to try and self-select more efficiently or to find that correct window um, that's ideal for them? Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you just kind of go out and are and are doing like a an, any sort of threshold type effort, just you can you just get into something that feels like a good balance between cardiovascular strain, between breathing heavily, and then the strain on your legs. You don't want to be so low that you really feel like you're having to muscle over the gears and you're not breathing too hard. And conversely, you don't want to be pedaling so fast that you're not feeling anything in your legs and your your lungs are taking the brunt of it. And now it's it's important to say that. You know, just because there is a ideal cadence for, you know, riding it at various intensities, it doesn't mean that doing, you should do all your riding at that cadence. There's definitely a lot of benefit to doing both low and high cadence drills. Um, those really, when you shift about 15% away from your self-selected cadence, either up or down, the physiological demands of the same power output shift. So obviously, if you're pedaling slower, there's more torque, so there's more of a muscular factor there. And, and again, as you increase cadence, just moving your legs faster, having to contract and relax faster, that inc increases the cardiovascular load. So you can get different training stimuluses for the same power by modulating the cadence. Mm, I think in the last episode as well, when we had Ian Boswell on, we, we spoke about cadence drills and doing high torque uh, efforts on the indoor trainer. Just on that point, um, is there a way that someone who's training at home on, a, on an indoor trainer or, or even who's someone who's training out, outside through winter, is there a way that they can identify where they need to work in terms of their cadence? So some people might naturally be better suited to like low cadence, high torque efforts, but, but struggle with the high cadence drills. Is there a way that you can find out what area you need to particularly work on and what the benefit will be to you? Um, probably the best way to figure out which one is going to be more beneficial for you. I can probably say that for 95% of the population, it's working on the high cadence stuff just because it's uncomfortable and people don't like to do it. Um, naturally, when you're going up a climb or anything, your cadence drops. So people have a lot more experience or are used to riding at lower cadences. But basically, you know, find a right, get an effort, steady effort, ride around threshold and just try riding at 50 RPM for a few minutes back off and then try riding at 110 RPM for a few minutes. Really just see which one is more uncomfortable for you, that's going to really tell you which direction you could probably, there's lower hanging fruit of which doing a little more emphasis on one side or the other is probably going to be more beneficial for you. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You mentioned um, climbing there as well, and I'm probably starting to deviate into what is potentially another myth or certainly a, an area of misunderstanding in terms of whether it's more efficient to climb seated or standing, but whether you are climbing seated or standing that will have effect on your cadence as well so what is the impact there on uh, in terms of your efficiency and i suppose specifically in regard to cadence yeah generally speaking you're always going to have a lower cadence when you're out of the saddle just again because you're not just moving from your your hip you're now getting your entire body into the motion so again the the faster you're pedaling the more you're moving so the more energy it's going to take um riding out of the saddle is generally going to be you're going to require more oxygen to ride at the same power it's the same as you know running or cross-country skiing is more of a whole body movement rather than just pedaling so being out of the saddle you're recruiting more muscles so you're generally going to be less efficient that's not to say that it's bad to be out of the saddle it, it can be quite helpful when um you're out of the saddle because you're allowing gravity to do some of the work for you because you're not supporting yourself on your saddle all your weight is going into each pedal stroke so you can you know, have a little bit of a break in that sense. Um, also just varying up how your muscles are contracting can be really helpful over long climbs. Like just sitting there locked in for 30 minutes can be quite, um, taxing on, on your body. So just getting up and moving, um, is helpful, but in general out of the saddle is going to be a slightly less efficient. Um, and it's going to be a lower cadence than, than climbing. And compared to the flat, most people are going to ride at a lower cadence when climbing. And that has a lot to do with the inertia of going uphill. Basically, you're having to put down power for a greater percentage of the pedal stroke when you're going uphill because gravity's constantly trying to slow you down. Whereas on the flats, you have momentum and inertia so that you have, you're doing shorter, basically, impulses of power. Um, so like the average, you might still be seeing 300 watts in both instances, but how you're producing that's a bit different. Interesting idea of... Um coming out of the saddle and the effect that that has on efficiency. I think it was back on the very first episode that we did when we did our jargon bust and we were talking about VO2 that you said that um, I think it was cross-country skiers have the highest VO2 numbers because that's relative to well, the, the, they're moving their arms as well as their legs and their core and that mm -hmm. um, that produces a higher value than a, a cyclist who's typically a lot more static. Yeah, exactly. Just as long as every, every movement theoretically has a VO2 max, um, just whatever, like swimming, there's a VO2 max. But again, the amount of muscles you're using is significantly less than 
than pedaling a bike or running. So, you know, the, the more muscles you start to recruit, the, the more oxygen you're going to be using. Excellent. Well, I think we've covered cadence. There. I'll be keeping a close eye on my cadence as I ride home tonight after this podcast. But let's move on to the next one. A, a real change in direction here, but we're going to talk about the idea that a change in body weight of 2% related to dehydration negatively impacts performance. Yeah. So there's a long-standing um, belief or statement, again, when you when you read a lot of um, articles dating back that as little as a 2% change in body weight will decrease performance. It'll negatively impact your VO2 max. It'll negatively impact your time to exhaustion. Um, and that's not necessarily correct. And there's, there's a number of, of reasons behind that. One of the big ones being, um, you know, you, you, you can see the change there, but realistically when you're doing higher intensity exercise, you're burning carbohydrates and that comes from glycogen, which is stored in your muscles. And one gram of glycogen and the average size male has about 500 grams of glycogen stored. So one gram of glycogen is stored with four grams of water. So that 500 grams of glycogen is stored with 2000 grams of water. Now that water is basically freed up as soon as that glycogen is used. And that can essentially act as a reservoir for your blood plasma. That's where you, your sweat comes from. It's from your, the plasma in your blood. So as you get dehydrated in theory, your blood becomes thicker. Your heart has to pump harder to get the same amount of flow going. Um, however, when you're properly, uh, glycogened up, fueled up, you have a secondary reserve. So you can basically lose that two kilos of water from sweat and have it essentially replaced by what the glycogen stores were, were holding on to. And even at, if you weigh a hundred kilos, that's two kilogram, that's a 2% change in body weight. And so most endurance cyclists aren't on the 100 kilo level. They're closer to, you know, 75, um, 75, 80. And so the, the idea that a shift of one and a half kilos of water will absolutely negatively impact you just isn't factual. There are circumstances where it, it can be the case if you're not adequately fueled, if you don't have a lot of glycogen going on, but then there's other, there's a lot of other problems you're going to run into there more so than the dehydration. And it's also worth noting that some people just react differently. Some people can function at a much higher capacity while dehydrated compared to other people. Again, we all, we're all a little bit different. We all look different on the outside. We're all look different on the inside and you get down to all our enzymes and muscle fibers are all a little bit different, a little unique to each of us. So, uh, I mean, I, I assume, although please do tell me if I'm wrong, I, I assume that someone should be staying hydrated as effectively as possible on the bike and someone should be um, making sure that they have enough glycogen or, or refueling as effectively on the bike. However, based on what you've just said, is it much more important from a performance point of view to make sure that you're getting adequate glycogen or carbohydrates than it is to be um, constantly drinking. And I, I realize here that one of the best ways to probably get carbohydrates into your body is through drinking. If you've got a sports drink. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right on that. The, the, the go-to method would be drinking in your carbohydrates because you're getting both the fuel and the liquid. Um, I would say the environment is going to really heavily impact what you need to be focusing on. Um, maintaining hydration is a lot more important in really hot temperatures because of the, the fact it helps you thermoregulate. It helps you not overheat when you have more, more volume of water on you. So in, in hotter environments, it's absolutely 
necessary to continue to drink more water and, and potentially favor water over carbohydrates. But at the end of the day, if you're doing any sort of high intensity, the fuel that your body will use is carbohydrate. So if you're going for a really long uh, ride or, or very high intensity and there's a chance of burning through that stored glycogen, you really need to be staying on top of the carbohydrates. But in, in general, it is, especially if you're not as comfortable maybe eating on the bike or taking your hands off the bars for long periods of time, just having carbohydrate in your bottle is the the easiest way to make sure you're you're taking care of both. And where do we're slightly diving into nutrition here, but where do electrolytes come into this? So that that's an interesting one. So electrolytes are again they're they're quite individualized. Generally speaking, the people who sweat more, endurance athletes who sweat more have a their their sweat as a lower concentration of sodium and electrolytes. Um, electrolytes are absolutely key to um, firing your muscles. They're key to transporting fluid um, between ingesting it and into your body. Um, it, it really is, you know, an individual thing. If you're someone who finishes a ride, a hot ride, and you have a lot of salt streaks or white streaks on your shorts or bibs, you're someone who's going to want to make sure that you're maybe having additional electrolytes. Um, myself, I sweat like crazy, um, but my sweat has always been super, super low concentration of sodium. So like electrolytes aren't something that I've necessarily had to, to deal with. Um, and we have some people, we've tested some people in the lab um, that they actually uh, get severe eye irritation because there's so much salt in their sweat that it starts to basically form grains around their eyes when the fan's blowing in it. So they can't, can't even rub their eyes. Um, and, and there's, there's patches and stuff you can get to test your electrolytes. That's something we did in the lab a lot just to give people a sense of what it is. But basically if you, most people who are salty sweaters know that, and those are the people who need to stay on top of it. Um, this is tangentially related and maybe would have been good to throw on here, but cramps, um, Cramps aren't explicitly caused by dehydration or lack of electrolytes. The actual um, mechanism behind cramps isn't even fully understood. So there are some people who, you know, they'll have pickle juice or whatever, and that'll solve their cramps. There's some people that will absolutely not work because the the cause of the cramps is not an electrolyte imbalance. Well, that's uh, that's that's possibly another myth debunked. Certainly something that I've learned. I, I've definitely been someone that's very closely associated um, sweating with electrolyte loss and with cramps. Um, but perhaps that's one for a for a future episode. Just bringing this back to to basics, I think the common advice in terms of how much to drink on the bike per hour is somewhere between 570, uh, 500 and 750 milliliters. So like a smallish bottle of water or, or a large bottle of water on the bike. Is that is that fair as a ballpark for most people? It is. And it's actually it's actually pretty easy to figure out how much you need to be drinking. Um generally if you've got yourself a bathroom scale and you're gonna go out for a ride, you know jump on the scale beforehand holding, like if you're going out with two water bottles, jump on the scale with both the water bottles, go out, ride, come back and get back on the scale with those hopefully two empty water bottles. And that difference in weight will show what your absolute um, loss was over that time. If you need to, ideally you'd have no loss because you drank as much as you were sweating out. Um, but again, that's that's a really easy way just to get a gauge of how much you're sweating over the course of a ride. Um, I know for myself, like sweating in in hotter environments, sweating like three liters an hour wasn't was pretty standard, which is why I really 
did not do well in road races unless I was in a breakaway and could get constant feeds because I just get massively dehydrated. Well, I think that's a really good point to end this one and move on to the next one because it's a useful segue between uh, jumping on the scales before and after a ride. That's a really good snippet of advice for riders to weight of a different kind. And the myth here, or the myth that you want to discuss is the fact that a lighter bike uh, is the best way to ride faster. That's certainly the myth. Yeah, there's there's always been a, a weight obsession with with cycling. Um, and in, in reality, when you're riding a bike, unless it's on incredibly steep gradients, the number one force that you're trying to overcome is air resistance. As you increase speed, the resistance from the air um, increases by a factor of four. So going twice as fast requires four times as much power. Um, and so in reality, most of the effort you're having to put in is just overcoming wind resistance. It's not overcoming gravity. Now, it's fun to have a really light bike and all that, but for the majority of instances, a more aerodynamic bike is going to be faster overall than a lighter bike. Um, this is something that always drove me nuts with some of my, um, teammates. They'd always go for the, the light model bike. And I'd always be like one of the two guys on the team to have the aero model of whatever we were sponsored by at the time. Um, and in reality, you know, the, um, at least in the pro Peloton, the 6.8 kilo weight limit now is, is to the, it's pretty much every bike can get, get around that and be aerodynamic. So, you know, having the lightest equipment can be, can be fun, but it's not, it's not going to make a massive difference. Um, I will say the one thing that if you are talking about weight, um, a significant component that people talk about is rotational weight. So how much your wheels weigh is a really big issue. And that's only a factor if you have pretty frequent changes in velocity. So going slow, fast, slow, fast, slow, fast, because that's overcoming the inertia. But once you're up to speed, that weight of the wheel doesn't particularly have an impact having a super light one versus a heavier one. Mm, so this is this is a really um, interesting and fun area and definitely one that's been spoken about a lot over the last few years as riders have understood that aerodynamics are more important than uh, or, or is more important than weight. To ask you a, 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 about your personal riding preference, Mac, you, you know that aerodynamics are more important than weight. You live in Boulder in Colorado. If you're heading out into the, the, the Rockies for a uh, a climb-laden ride uh, at significant elevation as well. Will you still always choose the aero bike over the lightweight bike if you did have the choice between two? Absolutely. And part of that's just because my the reason I like going uphill is so I can go downhill, and I like going downhill fast. So more aerodynamic bike makes that part a bit funner. Riding downhill is very fun, and one of the ways that perhaps someone can ride downhill faster is either to get more aerodynamic on the bike themselves through their position, or perhaps to to drop some uh, some cash onto some sweet aero upgrades for their bike. Um, have you got any tips for riders in terms of how they either can get more aero through their body position and how they can start to understand the benefit of that, or actually, if you do have some money to spend, the most uh, cost efficient ways to do so? So the most cost efficient way to become more aero is to get aero socks, which they look kind of uh, dorky, but they're, I think they're about 60 bucks and, and the Watts saving per dollar for those is pretty astronomical. Um, when you're talking about just riding position, I'd, I'd recommend most people adopt what they call the, the Sphinx position. So where you're basically your forearms are parallel to the ground. Um, that's going to be more aerodynamic than riding down in the drops. Cause basically when you, when you think about aerodynamic drag, just imagine your, whatever your body is facing 
into the wind and that surface area. So you can imagine your fist going straight on into the wind versus down at an angle. If you were to imagine what that looks like from the front, you go from just seeing your fist to seeing your fist plus a bunch of forearm. So being getting those arms um, uh, parallel to the road and then basically just trying to become narrower, so kind of shrugging your shoulders together. The, the best way you can easily do that, get faster or more aerodynamic is just to make your frontal profile smaller. Um, obviously when you're, when you're climbing, it's fine to be on the flats really upright because wind isn't as big of a deal. But if you're trying to go fast on the flats or downhill, you definitely just want to try and be as small as possible. And I will just throw out the disclaimer that, um, riding downhill fast is really fun, but it comes with inherent risks. So you should not try to ride faster than your skill set um, would enable you. So that's just, and I, I learned that the hard way as a junior, I had a number of, uh, offs on some descents around my house when I was growing up. So I, I quickly learned where, uh, where my limits were. And I'd like to think I've respect them most of the time, but you know, sometimes you just get a little rowdy, a little too crazy going downhill and it gets a little questionable. That's definitely a useful disclaimer to get in there. I've been lucky enough to ride in, in Colorado once and some of the descents that you have are, are pretty wild in terms of like extremely long, like a fairly mellow gradient, like four, five, six percent as opposed to some of the really steep gradients that we have here in, in the UK, but big, long, wide roads. So you can really get up some serious speed. Um, definitely, mm. uh, yeah, definitely require your brakes to be in good working order. It's also nice being uh, up here where the, the air is a lot thinner. So again, air resistance is the biggest thing. So if um, Mount Evans is a, is a 14 or so 14,000 foot peak here, um, what is that in meters? Like 5,000? 4,500 meters. Um, so it's it's up there. It's tall, but the air is really thin at the top. So you can hit 100K an hour going down that pretty without really much effort, which is fun, but also definitely a situation where your brakes need to be in tip-top shape if you're going to be coming down that thing. It's always mad to uh, us Europeans and particularly those of us in the UK when we're talking about the elevations that you can get to in, in the US and in Colorado in particular. So yeah, I've just done some quick Googling. 14,000 feet is 4,267 meters. Um, <laughs> the highest mountain in the UK is about a thousand meters um, and you can't ride a bike to the to the top of that or you, or you could perhaps with a little bit of hike a bike along the way. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's some pretty serious elevation. Seriously thin air, and I can imagine that takes some toll on your lungs as well. Oh yeah, Be getting to the top of that thing, it you know, zone two power feels quite difficult because there's not as much air getting into your lungs. Yeah, I asked you that question, but actually, uh, I've got as I say, I've got firsthand experience of that. I think I just blocked it out of my mind because uh, I think it was um, is it. Bertha's Pass? Is there, is there, Berth, Berthed Pass, yeah. Berthed Pass, that's it. Yeah, and that, that gets to some serious elevation. That was one that we rode uh, when I was out in Colorado. It was for a, a test event for the Hope Route Rockies. And yeah, I remember getting to the, the, the foot of that climb. I don't think I was particularly well uh, hydrated, going back to one of our previous points, or certainly not well fueled. It was a seriously hot day as well. And I had jet lag, so there were a, a, multitude, of, a, a multitude of sins that were preventing me pr from producing a, a decent performance on the bike. But yeah, I remember getting to the bottom and the, the gradient was only 4 or 5%. Like It's basically a highway, so it stays at a pretty steady gradient. But jumping out of the saddle and trying to shift the bike along just nothing absolutely nothing in the tank it was quite a, a harrowing experience mm -hmm. it's definitely anyone who gets the chance to come ride a bike in colorado highly recommend it 
there we go. I would do the same. Definitely keen to get back out there. And um, just before we move on from this point, we've talked a little bit about the tech involved in terms of uh, either saving weight or more to the point, improving the aerodynamics of your bike. And the goal here is to, to ride faster. However, we've spoken a lot about training through this series. I would assume for most riders, the most effective way to ride faster is to train smarter because that can be effectively a, a free upgrade. Yeah, it really is. Like getting you know, 10 watts of savings through equipment can be pretty expensive. Um, getting 10 watts through training can just be a matter of being more consistent or being more um, intentional with with the efforts that you are doing. So I definitely say, um, you know, try to max out the the engine side before you start upgrading the chassis, before you start upgrading the uh, the bike. Yeah, that's good advice. Definitely nice to, uh, to upgrade the bike. And I think uh, a lot of people who are cyclists uh, get a kick out of the tech side of things. But um, yeah, certainly some work to do on under the engine uh, or, or under the bonnet on this side. Um, okay, let's part that one and move on to the next one. And this is uh, one we were chatting about briefly off air. The myth here surrounds lactic acid. I think it's uh, a term that most people will be familiar with, but perhaps don't understand as well as they uh, they could do. Yeah, so lactic acid, that's one of my... Um... I guess you could call it pet peeves from from commentators at, at at all level of all sports. You listen to commentators on the Olympics. You watch, you know, Tour de France. Everyone's commentators talking about oh, the burn of the lactic acid, the soreness from the lactic acid. Um, lactic acid's ba- basically been um, made the villain of everything that's bad with exercise is because of lactic acid. From feeling bad in the moment to feeling bad the day after. Um, and the truth is lactic acid isn't responsible for essentially any of those bad feelings. Um, for a brief history of, of lactic acid, it was, you know, I think it was like 1790 or something. It was first discovered in sour milk. So it's basically fermented milk, fermented lactose, which is the sugar in milk, hence lactic acid. And then it was, I think, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, French scientists got some uh, frog legs, uh, no living frog attached to them, and basically just repeatedly uh, electrocuted them for them to contract and did that until they stopped contracting. And then when he looked inside, he found that lo and behold, the muscles were chock full of lactic acid. So the rationale then became lactic acid is why the muscles stopped working. Now, that's not at all why. Um, there's, um, you know, energy production is required to contract muscles. And so as soon as all that energy is gone, because those legs weren't hooked up to any circulatory system, there is no more fuel going into them. So they're going to stop eventually. Um, Lactic acid is a byproduct of anaerobic metabolism, but your body is constantly producing lactate. And I'll even say at this point, lactate, not lactic acid. Lactic acid doesn't technically exist in the human body. There's lactate and then a hydrogen ion, which are produced. Now, when those are together, that's lactic acid, but that is not how your body produces that. So lactic acid, anyone who says, oh, this is, anytime you hear the term lactic acid and when it comes to sports, whatever they're saying is basically automatically invalid because lactic acid does not exist in the human body in any animal body you get lactate and hydrogen ions. And the hydrogen ions are what's responsible for changing the acidity of your blood, but even that isn't the sole thing responsible for the burning sensation you get in your legs. Um, Lactate itself is actually a source of fuel. It can be um, changed into basically pyruvate. It goes into different areas of the, uh, how your body produces ATP. So 
lactate is actually a good thing. Your body needs it. It can send it to your liver and your liver can turn it back into glucose, which is the main fuel. Um, lactate is one of the primary fuels for neurons. So the cells in your brain require lactate to function. Anytime you're just sitting around, your body's going to have about, your blood's going to be about one millimole of lactate. But for, for some reason from those early days of the frog legs and muscles stopping because of lactic acid, it's just been the, the whole reason for um, everything bad. And even people claiming that it's responsible for delayed onset muscle soreness or the day after fatigue, that's also not true. Your body clears out lactate pretty effectively once you stop exercising. I think one commenter, this was years ago now, but I think they were talking about the soreness there is because the lactic acid forms crystals in your muscles that then tear them up. And that's just so wildly <laughs> not a thing. <laughs> but yeah, so, so lactate is a good thing. It's necessary. Your body does start to produce more of it as you go harder. It does clear it out. There is a lactate turn point where basically your body's producing more lactate than it can clear. That can be highly correlated with functional threshold power, which we've talked about. But lactic acid isn't a thing, and it's not a bad thing. Well, that was that was a fascinating whistle-stop tour of lactic acid, or I, sh I should say not of lactic acid, of lactate, because lactic acid doesn't exist. Um, and a really colourful history as well around that uh, that French experiment, those poor frogs. <laughs> Just to, to go back to the, 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 the burning sensation that a rider does feel on their legs when they reach a certain um, threshold or you know, a certain uh, level of exertion, what is going in, on there then? Why, why do you feel that burning sensation? So it's a combination of, of several things. They've actually, um, some studies were done basically on the, the, the muscle that contracts your, um, your thumb. And basically they, there's a number of different things. You've got the, the hydrogen ions, you've got the lactate. There's going to be ADP, which is different than ATP. It's um, adenosine triphosphate is ATP, so adenosine diphosphate, so two. Um, it's basically a, a byproduct of once you break down ATP, um, then there's, um, you know, stuff to do with basically the, the, um, basically there's, there's a number of different chemicals going on anytime a muscle contracts and they've done studies where they'll inject that muscle with each of those individually and get the response of the individual of if it's burning or not. And it's only when all of those are injected at the same time that you get the burning sensation. So it's not just one of them that cause it. It's essentially the combination of all of them that your body is responding to, which to some extent makes sense because those are always going to be produced at the same time. So you wouldn't naturally ever just have one of those by itself in a muscle. So, um, but yeah, the, the burning sensation is a, is a much more complicated, um, than just the hydrogen ions from the lactate that's produced. Mm. Is some of the complication there, the fact that and um, I don't know anything about this, so treat treat me as the, uh, the 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 dummy in this conversation, which I clearly am. But you have lactate threshold, and you have lactic acid, and lactate threshold is the point at which you start to uh, uh, you start to suffer in the long term. There's only a certain amount of time that you can hold that level of exertion. So is that is that partly where that misnomer comes in terms of lactic acid, which doesn't exist, being the the the, the kind of correlation between the point that you can no longer sustain a certain level of effort and the pain that's associated with that yeah it, it it definitely is there's i'll say that they're very highly correlated but they're not default one for the other that's why like a lactate threshold lactate turn point can be used roughly to equate to ftp but they're not 
one and the same thing. It's more or less um, a, a the change in physiology that means you're going above that sustainable pace happens to coincide with the change in physiology that you're producing more lactate than you can clear. So it's they're happening at the same time, but one isn't causing the other necessarily. And just whilst we're talking lactate, uh, a few years ago, I did a, a VO2 max test or a ramp test. And as part of that, they did some lactate testing. So taking a, a finger plint, a, a little prick of blood out of my finger at certain intervals. What was the reasoning behind that? And where does that come into things when we're talking about lactate threshold and the, the myths surrounding lactic acid itself? Yeah, so that'll generally be done. We've done that in the lab. I've probably taken a couple thousand lactate samples at this point in my life. Um, the idea is you want to see the the curve. The, the it's a curvilinear thing, so it'll start to it'll steadily rise. Sometimes it'll initially drop when you're doing lower intensities, and then there's a that break point, that turn point where all of a sudden your body, the work you're doing, your body's changing the energy systems a bit, how it's using stuff, and it's not able to utilize the lactate that you're producing for fuel. So you get basically an overflowing cup situation where your body's kind of constantly clearing it out and you're adding to it. As you increase your effort, you're producing more and more of it. Um, and then you get to a point where it just goes off, off the charts. Um, that'll also be associated again when you look at the um, RER values, so respiratory exchange ratio. We talked about that in a previous episode, but basically once that value goes over one, you're looking at basically breathing off extra um carbon from basically your your blood is trying to buffer out that hydrogen ion so if you remember back in school when you do vinegar and baking soda and there'd be a a nice fizzy bubble volcano that's essentially what's going on in your blood that causes the extra um co2 to be um essentially breathed off and so that the rationale behind that is to, to find that turn point. It can also be really helpful depending on what protocol you use. You can sort of see um, potentially where training should be focused. If you have really high steady state levels of lactate, then probably more endurance training is, is required. Um, you can see after a hard effort, you can see if that lactate, like how quickly you clear out the lactate after that hard effort. So I don't know what they did for you. We'd always do the test and then take a sample two minutes and then four minutes after the end of the test to see how you're clearing things out. Because again, that can just give you insights into some of the, the physiology and areas you might want to focus on for training. Just on that point, going back to the episode we have with Nate Wilson, he mentioned a, a, a recent Welter Espana winner who he tested and he talked about the relationship between um, threshold and VO2 max is that does that come into this that that in terms of the data that you could get out of a lactate threshold test the idea that you might be riding or you might be able to sustain a high percentage of your lactate threshold or your FTP and there so that indicates that actually there's quite a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, so you can you can kind of differentiate where that turn point is from where the absolute ceiling is for aerobic ability. And yeah, with, with Sepp, when we, we tested him, it was his, basically his lactate threshold. That turn point was at a very low percentage of what he could do for maximal aerobic power. So that was just indicative of, okay, under the, he's got a big old ceiling that he can come up. That he's got room to, to grow under. So you can use those two bits of information in conjunction to get a, a more complete picture of, of an athlete's physiology and see what, again, what they should be focusing on to improve. 
if you do want to listen to that episode, it's a fantastic episode. We had at Mac on, of course, as we have throughout this series. We always had Nate Wilson, who's one of the performance managers for Team EF Education Easy Post, and we discussed training zones in depth, and in particular how amateurs and pros alike, particularly from Nate's perspective, can use zones to train more effectively. And, and yeah, really interesting snippet of information around how uh, how both Wahoo and the the team have tested Sep in the past and uh, yeah turns out that he's a bloody good bike rider and can win the world to Espana. Um but yeah clearly there's lots to learn for pros and amateurs alike from from fitness testing and training zones so do go back and check that one out um just finally on uh, lactic acid or the myth surrounding lactic acid mac um, you mentioned there that sometimes lactic acid is uh, associated with uh, post-exercise muscle soreness. That's not the case. Lactic acid doesn't exist. And if it did, it certainly wouldn't be the cause here. So what is going on there when you've had a hard ride and the next day you've got that uh, that familiar sore feeling in the legs? Yeah, so so generally, so that that what's that referred to as the soreness afterwards is called delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS. Um, and that's essentially the, the sensation there is due to micro tears in your muscles. Um, generally speaking, that's more likely to be caused by what you call an eccentric contraction, so a controlled elongation of the muscles. So like if you're squatting down, your quads will slowly be elongating. And it's generally that motion that's going to be more likely to cause soreness, which is why you can be a phenomenally fit bike rider and then go on a hike with you know some friends or a loved one that's not very long, maybe two miles, and the next day your legs can be absolutely destroyed because your muscles are not used to that sort of eccentric contraction. But the the soreness is literally just because your muscles have are damaged, they've been torn slightly, and they need to heal, repair. If you are feeling that, that's a really good time to have a very, very easy recovery spin because you'll get you know blood flow back to those muscles. You'll get nutrients there so they can start repairing faster. Basically, the, the slowest way to recover from that stuff is to do nothing. You want to have some sort of passive um, recovery after the fact if your legs are really sore the day after. Mm. That's really interesting, actually. We've spoken a little bit about recovery throughout the series without ever getting too deep in it. So actually, a really good tip is actually not just to put your feet up the next day, but just to get out for a short spin. Could be, what, half an hour? Oh, yeah, half hour, even tw- 15, 20 minutes, just, just enough to get the blood pumping back back in your legs get that circulation going excellent well that's uh that's a good place to leave that one certainly learned a lot about uh, about lactic acid or, or the fact that lactic acid doesn't even exist so let's move on to our next one this uh, this one really caught my eye here and, and the myth that we're going to dive into is the fact that the common thinking might be that as you get older that you automatically get slower and uh, in your notes across to me mac you uh, you said that once you hit 30 40 50 whatever the age is you'll only get slower now this one really caught my eye for over 30 ouch that's uh, that's <laughs> that's relatively young for someone to to be going downhill but hopefully you're going to tell me that's not actually the case yes as long as you're not a world tour pro that is not the case and really what it comes down to is there there is going to be a natural decline in your peak heart rate and sustainable heart rate there's going to be a decline in muscle mass all of these things as you get older they just because of how your endocrine how your hormones work just body aging those things are going to decrease however if you never hit your let's say full athletic potential in your 20s then you're you have room to still go up before you come back down. Basically, the the idea that you're always going to get slower is 
true if you're static and don't do anything different, or it's true if you've reached basically the pinnacle of what your body is capable of. Um, a good example is, you know, they say like VO2 max will just start to go down with age. And that is absolutely true if you hit your genetic potential peak VO2 max when you're in your 20s. Like for myself, I know my VO2 max because I got it up to basically the most my body could possibly do. It's going to just get lower and lower and lower. Had I not been doing any training, my peak VO2 max wouldn't have been that high in my 20s and I still have room to get close back up to where it was. So so the idea that you're only going to get slower is you know just not it's not quite painting the whole picture and especially not the picture for people who have been not super active in their younger years and are getting more active now. Um I f- I forget his name but the French writer who who holds the hour the 100 plus hour record and the 101 plus hour record and the 102 plus hour record um between his 101st and 102nd uh years uh his VO2 max went up I think by 1. Point something milliliters per kilogram per body weight. Now that's supposed to not, you're supposed to not be able to do that. You're supposed to not be able to increase your VO2 max as you get older, but really it's just, he hadn't quite reached some of his potential before that. So you always have room to, most people have room to still improve. Sure. You won't be as fit as you might've been if you'd done all this training when you were 18, but you can certainly get fitter as you get older. There you go. Absolutely hope for us all. A really inspirational tale there of someone who's improving their VO2 max at 102 years old. Throughout this series, Mac, you've uh, you've referenced the fact that you've tested hundreds, if not thousands of riders throughout your career. Have you got any examples of riders who've joined cycling really late and uh, and actually have turned out to be uh, seriously strong bike riders, even if they haven't come from an, an athletic background, but because they do have so much room to improve that regardless of starting the sport at 40 or 50 years old, or like a 100 year old rider that, um, yeah, there's still room to become seriously quick. Yeah, there, there are a few examples of that. Um, I think one is a, is a good one. He, to be fair, he was in college. He was a uh, a triathlete, but not super serious or high level. He was on the CU collegiate team um, for triathlon, but took took a number of years off. Decided to come back into it uh, in his early forties, and between his early forties and and late forties, um, added about I think sixty watts to his FTP and about ten milliliters per kilogram to his VO two max because uh, he just got into more serious training. It's and essentially he's and to his own admission is fitter now than he was back in his college days just because there was good intent structure to what he's doing. He's taking it more seriously, being good about recovery. Um, so he's someone who, yeah, into his late forties was getting and has continued to get faster and faster. We've, we've, he hit somewhat of a plateau. There's still some areas to improve, but there's definitely a big a room to grow because he hadn't quite reached that full potential. And, and unless you're someone who's, legitimately spent maybe a year of your life seriously training it's very unlikely that you at some point have actually reached your full potential so pretty much everyone out there has room to to grow and improve and get better and that can be you know maybe the absolute numbers aren't what you're hoping for but if you can be consistent and work towards stuff you can absolutely get better get more efficient just improve with as you get older i think my my dad's another good example he um started riding he's really big into hiking but started riding uh 
think in his late fifties and has certainly gotten a lot stronger on the bike now into his early seventies than he was when he, when he first started, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Mm, it's really interesting there. And, and obviously you said earlier that someone who's a world tour pro, then inevitably the, unfortunately the only way is down from, from there, but for the rest of us and going back to the discussion we had about lightweight bikes and aerodynamic kit actually regardless of all of that the best way to become faster is to train more effectively so the same applies here to a large extent in that if you haven't trained effectively through your life whether that's from not being a cyclist or just being someone who isn't particularly fussed about training if you do take a structured approach and a smart approach in in later life so to speak then the gains will still be there yeah absolutely absolutely um and just another interesting um a side note around the whole getting slower with age thing is we've done a kind of a a large uh, age match study between men and women um, who've done our um, fitness tests, basically like 4,000 age matched men and women for a total of 8,000 people. Um, and basically the, the findings there were, again, as you get older, the shorter duration power, like your sprint power, your anaerobic capacity, those all drop with age. But interestingly, women don't really have after... 50 there's really no noticeable drop off in max aerobic power or um ftp so basically those real endurance markers which is um pretty well shown in other areas of in terms of like ultra runners and, and stuff of that nature is where women don't really have as much of a fall off as as some of their male counterparts um so there's it's just it's it's cool to see how that those ideas that are kind of known and shown in other areas can be reflected in in the the data that we've been able to mm. get an interest in there that you mentioned running as well um i was going to ask actually does does the fact that cycling is a non-impact sport help here specifically and that you're you're not grinding down your knees as you're pounding the pavements as a runner on on a bike so you're perhaps less likely to pick up injuries as an older cyclist um than you are as say like someone who's part of a running club yeah that's that's definitely a case it's definitely a, a more manageable mode of exercise for for people um especially as you get into older years, I will throw out the caveat that it is important to still have some sort of impact related, um, training and even just, just weight training can be good because again, one of the things that happens with age is your bone density starts to decrease. You can be at risk for osteoporosis. So your bones will be, uh, thinner. They'll be more likely to break. So cycling's great, but it's really not a good for, um, impact. And they've even, um, studies, even just through a single, tour to France, a single grand tour, they've done basically these, these scans that can look at bone density and, and through the course of a grand tour, um, pro cyclists lose a scary amount of bone density just because they have almost no impact other than maybe hitting the pavement, but that's not really the kind of impact that strengthens your bones. Um, but just those three weeks of no real impact has a really negative impact on bone density because it's, a, it's also that the exercise endurance exercise in itself can tend to more or less leach some of the minerals out of the bones over, you know, long, long periods of time. So cycling is a great and healthy sport, except for your bones. You need to do something else to take care of your bones. With that in mind, would you, regardless of age, so regardless if someone's like 20 or someone's 50 years old, would you recommend that anyone who cycles a, a, a decent amount, you know, someone that considers themselves an enthusiast of the sport, would you recommend that you have some kind of um, gym work or, or weight or strength and conditioning training. Yeah, absolutely. And that, um, I think that even goes just even for non-cyclists, just people just having general functional mobility is really important for later in life. Again, like you're, 
if your bone density starts to drop and you're not as coordinated because you haven't been, you know, being active, your chance of falling is higher and your bones are weaker. So it's just basically all cause mortality is a lot lower for people who remain highly active and, and doing gym work or even doing hiking, doing walking, those can all be, um, good things to incorporate. I know when I was at my most serious, I hated walking. Um, I felt like I remember like when I was at, whenever I was at like my absolute peak, I'd get like side cramps when I would walk for too long, just cause I think my body was so used to just being on a bike. Um, but it is, it is really important to have that sort of stuff going on year round just because sure it might not help you be faster on the bike right now, but it'll help you live a better life, you know, 40, 50, 60 years from now. It definitely sounds uh, like a good thing. I think I managed to be a, a not not a particularly good cyclist whilst also still having typically skinny cyclist arms. So I think I better get myself down the gym uh, pronto over winter. But yeah, variety is the spice of life and that applies to, to sport and fitness as well. Um, just uh, a couple more questions whilst we're talking about uh, this subject. And before we wrap up the podcast, you mentioned earlier the fact that one's maximum heart rate reduces as you get older what's going on inside the body there and i suppose my question actually is does that limit someone's top end so if your maximum heart rate at your when you were 21 was 200 but when you're 41 is 170 say not sure if that's a um a realistic change but um does that limit your ability to to kind of hit that top end what's going on uh, in terms of the, the actual effect yeah so it can so basically for vo2 max you know you're looking at one of the key components there is cardiac output so how big your heart how much blood your heart pumps with one beat and how many beats per minute you're doing and so generally speaking as you get if you've been doing endurance training your heart will get a bit larger it'll be able to pump more blood per minute um but generally that'll cap out at some point and so with a decreased heart rate you're moving less blood. So by default, you're not able to move as much oxygen. So yes, you'll, your, your top end, your VO2 max power will start to drop off as you age. Um, the actual mechanism behind it, I'm actually not a hundred percent sure on what the mechanism is, but it's, it's generally about, you know, one to two beats per, per five year period can be expected. And it's, it's really important to note that it's a drop relative to yourself your own max i know there's the the classic age-based heart rate you take 220 and subtract your age the more slightly more accurate one is 208 minus 0.7 times your age that's a bit more accurate and even in the the data that we have that tracks very closely with the general population however it can be incredibly inaccurate for people um i come from a family of people with hummingbird hearts um i think my peak five minute heart rates like 209 or something um hit 216 plenty of times um and same thing my dad who's in his early 70s now he can still hit you know 180 when he's doing really hard stuff now there's some people who i've had teammates who are 20 years old and their max heart rate's like 178 so there's a lot of variation just in what that absolute is so it will and it will go down with time, but it's really important to just make sure you're using your own baseline and not getting overly concerned if you're 60 and see a really high heart rate or if you're 20 and see a really low heart rate as your max. That's it's that's just what it is for you. We're all again, we're all our own unique beings. And so as long as it's relative to you, but yeah, you will see with time that number will just gradually, gradually go down. If you stopping active at all then the max won't change that much but your sustainable max will go down if you're not being active 
216, that I don't think I've ever heard of a heart rate that high. That's that's remarkable. <laughs> what does that feel like? It just feels like I'm going hard. I don't know. My uh I think and then like my max two hour I think was one eighty nine. Um it's just like I could have a pretty standard conversation at like 160 beats per minute just because that's I don't know, it's that's how my heart's always been. So it's not doesn't feel any different than um I think other people when they're going max, it's just my own unique little uh little aspect of me. Yeah. I'd like to think that's why I had a high VO2 max because I was just moving a lot of blood really quickly. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, yeah, I suppose that's just uh, that's that's just uh, normal to you. I'd love to uh, I'd love to get be able to get an extra 20 beats a minute out of my heart. Well, I think we can we can leave it there. I think it's a really nice note to end the podcast on. There's hope for us all. Uh, getting older doesn't necessarily mean getting slower. With a little bit of a little bit of structured training, which we spoke about in the first episode, and by taking a smarter approach to training, there's hope for us all when it comes to uh, getting faster on the bike. So we can wrap up there, Mac. It's been uh, it's been brilliant to have you on the podcast over the last five weeks. I've learned a lot. Hopefully, our listeners have learned a lot. But it's been an absolute pleasure. We've had you on the podcast before these series, and we hope to have you on again. So thank you once again. Yeah, absolutely. This has been a blast, and, and looking forward to the the next one in the future well yeah we will get you back on the near future there's lots of topics that we've touched upon that we haven't been able to get too deep into so yeah definitely keen to get mac back on as i said i've learned a ton through this series if you haven't listened to every episode then i do recommend that you go back and check out the other episodes in this series you can find it on uh, apple Podcasts and spotify on all the podcast platforms out there And to make sure you don't miss an episode in future, make sure that you subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast. Again, you can do it on any of the platforms out there. You won't miss an episode. And final ask from us is make sure you leave us that five-star rating. It really helps us get us up the podcast rankings. Thanks for listening. We will speak to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 